Welcome to Studio Two Friends. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Errant. Today on the show, Cherry, mm-hmm. we're focusing on the big story. Jalen Hurts reportedly shaved his goatee. Oh, goodness. That's the whole hour today. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, never mind. That's next week. We're doing three hours on that next week. Never mind. I'm sorry. That was a... T- today, <laughs> That's t- funny. Today, mm-hmm. um, we have three stories. We're going to start by talking to Cheney University's president mm-hmm. because the university has been yeah. put on probation by its accreditor. It seemed to be on the upswing. So this was sort of a... Um, a stunning development, yeah, and now several shock, yeah. local politicians are coming to the university's defense, so we're going to ask the president about exactly what's going on at Cheney. Middle segment today is about the big grocery store merger that's been proposed between Kroger and Albertsons mm-hmm. that does affect stores in our region, but the question is, will it actually happen? Because the FTC has sued to block the merger. So we're going to talk about the merger and the state of the grocery store industry with John Stanton, who is a food marketing professor at St. Joe's. And then the end of the show, Cherry, yeah. babies and, and screen time. time. Yeah, the question is, how does your baby's screen time affect their development? Mm-hmm. And how does your screen time affect your baby's development as well? Because a lot of parents, People they are part. on their yeah. screens instead mm-hmm. of talking and spending time with their babies. But we have a Temple professor here, Catherine Hirsch Pasek, mm-hmm. um, who specializes in psychology and neuroscience. And we're going to be taking questions on that we and are. on grocery stores as well. Should I give the number? Yeah, absolutely, Avi. Okay. 888 888- Four seven seven nine four nine nine. If the telephone's not for you, don't worry. Mm-hmm. You can email us studio two at whyy dot org. But first, news headlines. Cherry Greg, start us off. Yes, Comcast Spectacor released a proposal for a two point five billion dollar transformation mm. for the South Philly Sports Complex. Now, of course, Comcast Spectacor, they own the Wells Fargo Center. They also own the Flyers. They want to develop uh, some of the huge parking lots in the stadium district into hotels, restaurants, shopping, even a 5,500-seat performance stage. Mm-hmm. They also want to put some housing there, and they want to make the Could sports... live right in the yeah, middle they, of all they, that. Yeah, Ooh, absolutely. Wow. And they want to make the sports complex, Avi, more of a destination yep. because it's pretty barren when there's no games going on Just down there. Just a sea of parking lots, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. Now, the budget for reimagining this area uh, would you know, include an eventual uh, replacement of the Wells Fargo Center. Mind you, it had just undergone a $400 million renovation. Um, But you know what? After we spoke about the new 76ers arena and Market East last Mm -hmm. week, we know that Comcast is not happy about that. This had my uh, skepticenses (laughs) tingling. You're rarely so. You know, I'm like, am I making you more cynical? I, a little bit, but this right here after last week, you know, and that show, and yeah. by the way, shout out to everybody who hit us up and oh, emailed yeah. us. So many of you interested. This definitely had me saying, hmm, yeah. a little skeptical here. Sure. I mean, it could be a tit for tat thing, right? To say, hey, mm-hmm. don't support this plan for the Sixers. We're going to revamp this whole area. Let's keep all the fun down at the sports complex. And there are reasons to be skeptical of what Comcast is proposing here, mm-hmm. because back in 2019, they said they were going to build an esports arena down there. They have mentioned building a big office tower down there. Mm-hmm. Neither of those things happened. There was a pandemic, but yeah, yeah, neither that, of those, that, neither yeah, of those things, mm-hmm. neither of those things happened. And there's been years and years of talks about making 
the sports complex more of a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they've just never come to fruition. So you do wonder if this, how real is this? At the same time, it's not a bad thing if the Sixers proposal is spurring Comcast to Mm -hmm. take a more active interest in improving this part of the city, which Mm -hmm. I do believe can be improved. So it's not, even if it is just a response to the Sixers arena, I don't think that necessarily means it's a bad thing, but I think it's fair just like it's fair to be skeptical of what the Sixers are promising, it's certainly fair to be skeptical of what Comcast Spectacor is promising here. For sure. And by the way, uh, the Sixers um, arena lead developer, David Adelman, said he knew little about this plan for the sports complex. Mm-hmm. He says he has a lot of questions and that as far as he's concerned, the Sixers will not play in South Philadelphia in 2031 in any way, shape or form no in any building, what. new, old or whatever. And by the way, this new plan would take about a decade. Yeah. I'll just add one more quick thing, which is mm-hmm. that this is also about how sports teams are transforming themselves in the yeah. 21st century. They don't view themselves as just sports teams anymore. They view themselves as entertainment conglomerates with diverse asset portfolios that include multiple revenue streams, real estate. And so it's not surprising in that context that Comcast wants to expand its footprint down there. They're saying we're not just an arena and a sports team. We are bigger than that. Same thing for the Sixers. Same thing for the mm-hmm. Sixers. Moving on. Uh, another story here that caught our eye. So you might have missed this last year, but a group called the Media and Democracy Project petitioned the FCC to not renew Fox 29's broadcast license mm. because they, quote, knowingly f- uh, cast false narratives about the 2020 election. Let's be clear here. Fox 29, of course, is part of the broader national Fox affiliate, mm-hmm. but their news operations... Their local news operations. Yeah. ...are separate from mm-hmm. Fox mm-hmm. News. Um, but the because they rebroadcast some of what Fox News produces, that was sort of the, the impetus behind this petition to the FCC. The new twist, which is interesting here, Cherry, is that several prominent figures in our region have come to Fox 29's defense, many mm-hmm. of them... Democrats, Mm -hmm. such as Senators John Fetterman and Bob Casey, uh, Rep. Brendan Boyle from Philadelphia, Brian Fitzpatrick, Bucks County, who's a Republican but a moderate Republican, and State Senator Anthony Williams, who uh, is also from Philly and the Burbs. Mm -hmm. So some Democrats are saying, whoa, 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 FCC, do not pull Fox 29's license. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that support just because a lot of those folks are very much you know, into supporting local journalism and Fox 29. um, None of their local journalism was at question here. Again, all of this was because of the rebroadcast, but this is all a part of the, the push to, um, to get rid of this mis and disinformation um, from the Fox national. Um, And so unfortunately they're sort of like, this is a symptom of that, um, that effort to, uh, that, that stems from the Nabingan voting systems case. I don't know if yep. you remember that Fox having to pay $787.5 million um, in connection with them broadcasting all types of false things about this uh, company. Um, and so the local affiliate is sort of just feeling some of the aftermath of that. But, yeah, the but I, sure. I will say they had so many people from the community standing up because the FTC opened it up to public comment and more than 100 people from the community said, you know, keep our Fox affiliate, keep Fox 29 on the air. Do not threaten its license. So community standing up for folks. It reminds me a little bit of whenever there's chatter in D.C. about pulling federal funding for PBS. Mm-hmm. 
oftentimes, yeah, Democrats will say, no, don't do that. But you also hear from a lot of rural Republicans who don't want their local PBS affiliate to be hurt because that's a channel, you know, a throughway for them to talk to local voters, right? Like they benefit from having a strong like PBS station somewhere in Oklahoma, right? Yeah. And so you often have bipartisan compromising consensus when it comes to like local Local journalism. journalism. So it's interesting. And I'm grateful. Kind of heartening, I guess. Yeah, yeah it makes me feel good. Um, one of the other things that made me feel good was the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Pennsylvania chapter. They hosted a forum for the five Democratic candidates running for attorney general uh, here in Pennsylvania. That was last night. Organizers told me they did extend invitations to the GOP candidates, but they declined to attend. The Democrats, by the way, running for the top prosecutor position include Delco DA Jack Stolsteimer, State Representative Jarrett Solomon, who represents parts of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. former State Auditor General uh, Eugene De Pasquale, former Federal Prosecutor Joe Kahn, and Kier Bradford Gray, the former head of the Philadelphia Defenders Association. Yeah. I mean, five Democrats. Um, and names we've heard. Names we've heard. Yeah. They t they covered everything from civil rights to gun violence to election interference, they and they showed up and they spent about ninety minutes with as well. 85 folks on this mm -hmm. and there were it also was streamed on Facebook um, I moderated mm -hmm. but it was just nice to hear to see people so interested in the statewide race because we haven't heard a lot about it yeah. uh, in our region well, I'm glad it was a good conversation and as we know this is often a stepping stone to higher office that's <laughs> just e. what Josh Shapiro mm -hmm. used to do this job so uh, we'll see who pulls out the victory mm -hmm. and maybe where that person goes from there and uh, real quickly wanted to mention this story that Verizon Hall at the Kimmel Center is going to get a new name. And this is a nice story, Cherry. Mm -hmm. It's going to be renamed after the great Philadelphian, the great performer, the legendary singer Marian Anderson. Pretty cool. It's going to be called Marian Anderson Hall, and that is thanks to a pair of donors who gave a lot of money for them to rename the hall and said, don't name it after us. That's uh, Leslie Ann Miller and Richard B. Worley. Don't name it after us. Name it after this great Philadelphian, Marian Anderson, who, if you don't know, um, was an incredible <laughs> singer and uh, probably most famous for singing at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939 after the Daughters of the American Revolution had barred her from performing at Washington's Constitution Hall. This is uh, what you're hearing right now under my voice. Let's bring that up. The great Marian Anderson, and now her name will be on one of the great performance venues in our city, Marian Anderson Hall, formerly Verizon Hall at the Kimmel Center. I love that story. So moving on to our newsmaker for today, Cheney University is the nation's oldest HBCU. Recently, the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, though, placed the school on probation, putting it in jeopardy of losing its accreditation. But university and public officials, including Governor Josh Shapiro and State Senator Vincent Hughes, are pushing back against this designation. They say the probation decision has hurt the school's reputation and enrollment efforts. They say it's unfair. And joining us now to talk about what's next is Cheney University's president, Aaron Walton. President Walton, thank you for joining us on Studio Two. Well, thanks for inviting me, Avery. 
Um, and so, Aaron, the, the Middle States Commission on Higher Ed has placed Cheney on probation. Can you give us specifics? What is the reason why they put the school on probation and why specifically uh, do you and Cheney supporters say that this designation is unfair? Well, we're trying to determine that ourselves. Um, part of the process for determining whether you will be accredited is to have visiting teams chosen by the commission to come to the university after you've submitted a, um, a self-study report outlining everything that you're doing at the university and actually validate the information that you send to middle states. We had a team that came to Cheney in February of 23. They spent two or three days here looking at all the data that we had sent cooking the tires, looking at everything that you could imagine. And when the team left, they the report out was that they felt that Cheney met all the standards of accreditation. We thought that that was fine. So the Middle States Commission met in June and they deferred on voting on Cheney. In July, another team came to Cheney to do a very similar review. And at the end of their readout period, they reported that they felt that Cheney met all the standards of accreditation, and they made that report back to the Middle States Commission. Mm -hmm. Well, we were naturally shocked in November when we got a letter from Middle States putting us on probation without any discussion and without any warning, which is extremely uncustomary because part of the process is a collegial process of keeping you informed of actions that potentially will impact you. This we felt was extremely unusual. And the fact we are pushing back on the decision was made and we wanted to know the basis for the decision. And you so, don't you don't know at all. You have no inkling. Or or is it that you can't tell us? And I'm trying to understand if you truly have no idea why they did this, what you say is an unusual thing, or are you saying that that you might have an inkling, but you're not allowed to disclose it at this time? No, I'm saying I truly have no idea. No idea. Basically said, what is the what was the basis upon which the decision was made? And that was not shared with us. Mm. And so what has been the impact um, of the uh, probation decision um, on Cheney? Well, here, here's the issue. The fact is Cheney is still accredited. And, you know, we were, re our accreditation was reaffirmed in 2019. And this is our regular, that was our regular cycle to be reviewed. So progress has continued to be made since 2019. So we were, you know, we've done everything that we're, we should be doing to make sure that we're staying up with uh, what the accreditation standards mean and that we're meeting the integrity that's ex that's uh, respect that's expected of us. And when one of the things that came out was ethics and integrity, um, when I hear those two words, it leads me to uh, a feeling that there's something disingenuous that's going on, particularly since you've had two independent mm -hmm. groups come in and say, that we don't find anything wrong, then how can an arbitrary decision be made? Discounting the fact that two of your own committees came to the university yeah. and made positive reports. Yeah. We're trying to understand that. Yeah. And everyone's pushing back. Uh, we have about a minute left, but when you say you think something disingenuous is happening, I mean, what, what could that possibly be? I mean, and why would, uh, why would a, an accreditor sort of, you know, futz around behind the scenes? You know, they would have a lot to lose. That, that's why the push from uh, our various constituencies, we've shared 
everything we've done with the commission, with those that are endorsing and supporting our position, mm. they, like us, can't understand it either. And what we're trying to do is get uh, this situation addressed. We've asked for a meeting with the Department of Education, along with the Middle States Commission and us, to reverse the decision that was made. Mm. And we see that a lot of elected officials, including Governor Josh Shapiro, has stepped forward. Just quickly, um, I know that Cheney has had many challenges, but the school has made some wins. Can, tell us the, the the thing, one thing you're most proud of. I, I'm most proud of the fact that one, Cheney still exists 187 years later as of last Friday. Our student, uh, our uh, enrollment has uh, increased an average of 10% the last five years. We've balanced our budget every year the last five years. All the indices of a healthy university, our retention, our graduation rates are all going in the right direction. So if those are the things that a university is evaluated by in terms of data, then we're meeting the standards. So we wanna know outside of the data that we reported, what else is being used to make a negative determination. That is Aaron Walton, president of Cheney University. Thank you, sir, for joining us on Studio Two. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And coming up, we'll be talking about the biggest potential supermarket merger in our nation's history. Stick with us. Lots to come. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back into Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, shoppers. I'm Robbie Wolf and Eric. <laughs> supermarket sweep. I always wanted to be on that show, Cherry. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't give supermarkets too much thought. We probably have our favorite store that we visit. Yeah. You know, for our weekly or grocery few. trip, maybe a few. <laughs> but the industry has been in the news quite a bit lately because two of the largest supermarket chains, Kroger and Albertsons, want to merge. Now, together, they own dozens of brands, including Safeway and Acme. And if this happened, it would be the largest grocery store merger in history. But the Federal Trade Commission is suing to block it. They argue it will stifle competition and harm consumers. And we've already seen so many small grocery chains and independent stores close because of the arrival of big box retailers like Walmart and Costco and, of course, mega retailer Amazon. So we thought we'd take a look at the supermarket industry, what this proposed merger could mean for all of us, and other changes that are coming to your local store aisles. With us now is John Stanton, professor of food marketing at St. Joseph's University. John, welcome into Studio Two. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, friends, if you have any questions about grocery stores and changes in the way we shop for food, give us a call. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Even if you just want to complain about self-checkout, yeah, you can email I, us. And I got complaints <laughs> about that, by the way. Okay, John. Um, I think I have my numbers right here. Kroger, 2,700 stores about mm. under their umbrella. Albertsons, 2,200. Pretty big scale there. So why do these companies feel they need to merge to compete? The bigger they are, the more uh, they can take advantage of cost savings. Mm-hmm. 
especially in the area of supply chain. Mm. Yeah, and so um, how does the consolidation of grocery stores impact us directly? I mean, I, I have gone to big box stores, and I have noticed that the price of Cheez-Its at the big box stores is a little bit lower than the price of cheese, the same box of Cheez-Its at a, at a mom or pop. So is that the, the outcome, lower prices for us all, or is there something more? Well, the Federal Trade Commission would say it's the opposite, right. that uh, as they control more of the market, they're in a position to simply raise prices. A little bit. A little bit. Um, because there is other choices in almost all the markets. But the I would not expect to see prices go down, that's for sure. If this merger happens. If this merger happens. So that sounds like you're agreeing a little bit with the FTC's uh, basic idea here. I am a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to be careful um, when we eliminate competition. Mm -hmm. What I'm not sure of, um, will it, in fact, inhibit competition? Because they're saying we have a lot of competition outside of the traditional supermarket industry. Walmart, Costco, Amazon, we named those. Target, you can get food, supermarket products, a lot of places now. Oh, yeah. And that's, you see, part of the problem is the Federal Trade Commission takes, in my opinion, a naive view to this. Mm. And they're saying, look at this, all these traditional supermarkets, they're, they're going to control that market. No, they're not, mm -hmm. <laughs> because, as you say, there's so many other places to buy food. And by the way, it, it can be convenience stores. We know Wawa, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. has just about everything you need. Yeah. So it's too narrow a definition, I guess, of food stores. It, it is. Yeah. It, it, it really is. Now, in the Philadelphia market, I don't think we're going to, if this goes through, I mm -hmm. don't think we're going to see much of a change. Why is that? Um, because in our market, we have only one of their stores, which is Acme, yeah. mm -hmm. and we have so much good competition. Yeah, we have ShopRite. We have, like you said, the Target stores, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Got to ask you, I've heard that, I've read um, that um, margins are razor thin in the grocery industry. How do these stores actually make money? And, <clears throat> and is that razor thin margin argument, is that true? It is a razor-thin margin, but that's not their only source of income. Mm. What I think most people don't understand is these manufacturers pay supermarkets to put their products on their shelf. Hmm. How does that work? Yeah, like what are the streams of income here? The the supermarket would uh, the the manufacturer would say, "Look, would like to put these Cheez-Its on your shelf." And the supermarket says, sure, but, you know, to be on the shelf, you've got to pay us something. And they make payments to, this, to the supermarket. Mm. That's called trade promotion. Just like... It's to be in a certain part of the supermarket or just to get on the shelf at all? Get on the shelf at all. Wow. wow. But you pay more if you want to be between eye and thigh. Mm. So I don't have to reach down for the product or reach up for the product. Yeah. Interesting. So and that's then, so, so that's that makes the argument as to why some some products are on the bottom shelf and you miss it because they didn't pay the premium to get on the higher shelves. That's right. 
That's right. And there's other there are loads of other payments. You know, on the, the end of the aisle, you pay dearly for that. The end cap, yeah. End and what caps. are the other ways that they make money besides just selling products? Um, things that aren't direct to a specific product. For example, they sponsor events that the supermarkets have, uh, like golf tournaments and things oh. of that nature. Um, they give them various kinds of cash deals. That is, if you buy a certain amount, then we'll deduct uh, money. So that's, in a sense, um, letting them charge more and pay less. Mm. And these are not small amounts of money. Mm -hmm. These are in the billions of dollars. Wow. I want to read a couple emails here. This is uh, from Tim who says, I changed my grocery store because of inflation. That helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Brittany says, I am super loyal to Wegmans, which would not be part of this merger, although you love Wegmans. I love Wegmans, yes. <laughs> uh, Brittany says, I feel like uh, I do it in a pretty normal way, but then I have friends who make Trader Joe's their whole personality. <laughs> I can't say exactly what it is that I love about Wegmans. I just love it. I kind of love that email from Brittany. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask about brands. Mm -hmm. Hopping off of that, what Brittany said. Kroger, Albertsons, um, are not brand names here, but obviously, you know, Acme is under the umbrella of Albertsons it is, right? Yes. Why do these conglomerates keep the local brands in place as opposed to, you know, Walmart or Target, which create these national brands? The main reason is people love their local brands. Mm. And the companies can't afford to let consumers go to another store to get these local brands. Now, many of these small local business, they don't have to pay the trade promotion dollars, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They give them s space in the store for that. But Walmart is just so big. Yeah. Um, Costco's private label brand is a really good brand. You know, they're Kirkland does this. Kirkland yeah. is a really good brand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that's what's interesting to me, though, John. We're talking with John Stanton, mm -hmm. professor of food marketing at St. Joe's, that a lot of these brands have been able to, like, get people to trust a national brand. And yet, in the traditional supermarket sector, we've not seen someone follow suit, even though it does seem like American consumers are willing to buy into these <clears> national <throat> brands. I, I, help me understand that. Well, we really don't, with the exception, really, of Kroger and and if it goes through for Albertsons, um, there really aren't national grocery stores. Yeah. Um, and it may have to do with the logic of supermarket operators. Um, you know, they have a particular audience. What? people in Philadelphia want is not the same thing as what people in Memphis want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and unless you have the muscle of Costco, Walmart, etc., um, you've got to have some of these things that people want to buy in your market. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And, and I got to, can you quickly <clears throat> just give us, I mean, a lot has changed in the industry. We now focused on consolidation how did it used to be? Because I don't remember these big box stores when I was growing up. It was a very neighborhood focus. That you didn't have stores that had 100,000 square feet and 60,000 items. You had stores 
that had what those neighborhood people wanted. They didn't need to have all of these. But what happened is, as the manufacturers started paying more and more mm. to be in the store, supermarkets are saying, hey, I'll put you on the shelf if you want to pay for the space. As we wrap up, John, crystal ball time. You know, the supermarkets, they kind of knocked off the butchers and the green grocers and the general mm -hmm. stores. Are the supermarkets about to get knocked off by Amazon, by Walmart? Are, you know, 50 years from now, are we going to be saying, remember supermarkets, or are they here to stay? Well, I think we're going to see change mm -hmm. take place. Mm. I saw a quote in uh, Wall Street Journal from about 50 years ago. And it said, if things continue along the same lines, every supermarket in America will be an A&P. Wow. Mm, <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is, <laughs> so you never know, I guess, is what you're yeah. saying there. <clears throat> yeah. You really never know. Yeah. But I think that um, we're going to see some disruption. Here. Some disruption. But the biggest disruption is, of course, Home delivery. Yeah, Instacart, all Instacart, of that. Instacart, mm -hmm. that, that's going to make a big change. Interesting. Yeah. We will wait and see what those changes look like. Thank you so much. That's John Stanton, professor of food marketing at St. Joseph's University. Really appreciate your time on Studio it's Two. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, coming up, babies, kids, and screen time. Lots of stuff to discuss, so you don't want to swipe left on us. By the way, if you have questions or comments, 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. We'll be right back. Put down the phone. <laughs> Come back into studio to join us. I'm Avi wolf -Manirat. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi... I know you're a dad. Mm -hmm. So do you let your baby girl spend time <laughs> on the phone or the iPad? True well, confession. Yeah, to, to Keep do it the real. True Keep it real. I mean, not a ton, mm -hmm. but everyone's, I mean, she's really, really into it. I mean, yeah. if she sees it pop on, she wants to touch it. Um, uh, we don't plop her in front of it. Uh, but I will say the TV's on in the house sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sometimes she turns and looks at that. So I would say a bit. Okay. However, multiple studies suggest that screen time has an impact on children's development, autism, ADHD, weight wow. problems, the list goes on. With us today is Katherine Hirsch-Pasek. She is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Temple. Kathy, welcome to Studio Two. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be back. And just before we get going, speaking of screen time, we want to hear from you. Our email is studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call 888-477-9499 and get your questions in right now. This is such a basic question, Kathy, but when we are talking about the academic definition of screen time, what actually counts? Like if the TV's on in the background, is that screen time? I mean, I assume looking straight at the phone is screen time for, for an infant or a young one, but what actually counts here? Well, you would be surprised that it's all of the above. All oh. of the above. <laughs> now, part Surprised of and dismayed, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, break that down. But I'm going to break it down a little for you. First of all, when you have a TV on in the background and you think your kid isn't noticing, they are. We should have all learned that during COVID when we thought that our kids 
weren't paying any attention at all to what was going on, except that the museum was closed and the playground was closed. And then they started using words like COVID and Mm. pandemic Mm. because they were hearing it in the background. But it also turns out that when there's a lot of background noise, it diminishes the way you can hear speech. And if that's what's happening, then even if you're having conversations with your kids, and a lot of times we're diverted to the television and not into the eyes of our child, but when it's dampened, it's harder for the children to learn language. So that inhibits their language acquisition. It actually there is actual research on that. Yeah, and just having the TV on the back, or I guess with the radio on in the background. Too. Well, you know, a lot of noise that isn't directed to a child mm. is noise. Interesting. So, what does the landscape kind of look for when we talk about kids? Um, and I want you to define what it means to be kids. And does and do you separate the kids in buckets um, to like determine based on age, based yeah. on age to determine. Um, whether sc- the harm that screen time or excessive screen time can cause. Um, so what, what does that landscape look like with well, regard I'm gonna to that? Well, I'm going to unpack some assumptions here. Okay. First of all, you asked, what do we mean by screen time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of screens out there. Okay. I mean, it's part of our daily life now. And we had the same problem when television first came in. Oh, my God, screen time. Nobody should be looking at it. How much time is damaging? What's harmful? What isn't harmful? And what we learned is that it's not just amount that matters. Mm -hmm. It's also the content. So if your kids are listening to the nightly news and they're under eight years of age, probably not such a good thing. Mm. Okay. All right? If they're babies, and this is something that you just mentioned, that they'll watch anything. Yeah. Okay? You put it on. Put on Candy Crush. And those kids will be addicted to Candy Crush. Mm -hmm. So the point is... What's good for kids and what isn't good for kids? What allows them to sample? And just like in a diet, how do we decide how to have a healthy diet and not just eat dessert all the time? Because Mm. we could say of little kids, they love it, so we want to give them more of it. Well, you don't do that with chocolate pudding. Yeah. So you probably don't want to do that with screen time. So we need to balance the diet. All right, once we get up above 8, 10, 12, what we're looking at is unbelievable amount of hours on the screens today. Mm -hmm. We are talking, I kid you not, more than a full-time job. Wow. Mm -hmm. So more than eight hours. Uh, These kids, many of them are spending eight hours a day. Now, some of it's for work. Notice screen time isn't screen time. It's schoolwork. Yeah, yeah. some of it's for schoolwork. Some of it's- We have to be on screens to some extent. Okay, and Mm -hmm. some of it's for texting. Because you got to know what the kid you're meeting for lunch is going to be doing about lunch, right? (laughs) But it's almost gotten to the point where it's becoming a kind of addiction. And I just have to share with you what happened this year. So I'm teaching a class called The Computerized You, because I wanted to discuss all of this in the context of AI and what the difference in AI and what the metaverse is going to mean for kids. So I said to my class, 40, you know, 20-somethings, I said, here's the challenge. After class today, can you spend 24 hours not looking at your phone? Mm, Couldn't do it. Three people made it out of 40. Wow. Mm -hmm. And they said it was killing them. The anxiety of not looking was so awful. And I love this line. What if somebody dies? Oh, 
Okay, we'd want to know about that. (laughs) But the chances of that happening, and that's the rationale why you have to be looking Looking at your your phone, phone, not high. And and I want to, can you, you, the kids under eight, are there um, buckets or groups of kids, you know, put them in age groups to determine how much people do? And it's all over the map, to be honest with you. And it's, you know, the under twos is the clearest. Okay. What's, and what's, what's clear what's about that? that? What's clear? Okay, yes. here we go. <laughs> the American Academy of Pediatrics, this is also true of the British Academy of Pediatrics, under two, no screen time. Now, they relax it for one thing, FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And we can go into that if you like, but I would FaceTime, lo- I would love to, this yeah. is what, yeah. FaceTime is very different than a lot of other screen time where you're passively sitting or passively scrolling you know, and browsing your friends' lives. Very, very different. What's happening in FaceTime is you're having conversations, like Zoom. Mm -hmm. And we all got used to that during the pandemic. So you really are kinda, not really, but kinda, looking in the eyes of another person, Mm -hmm. being responsive, temporally responsive to another person. Those things matter. And especially in the under twos, we now know that that kind of rhythm that you have with a baby Mm -hmm. Back and forth and back and forth. Some call it serve and return. I call it a duet because you have to sing it together. Those moments are so important Mm. for language learning, but we've now learned for brain growth. It turns out that those back and forth, well-timed moments are critical for building brain structure and brain connectivity. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to muck that up. Mm. And there, I just want to pop in here that it's not just about your kid on a screen. You being on it's the screen. It's you being too. on the screen as yeah. well, yes. You got it, guys. Because you're not doing the interacting. And we've actually, yeah. yeah, we've actually done the studies on it. What happens is you're breaking the timing by constantly looking at your phone. Mm-hmm. What you're saying to your kid is, you don't matter. What matters is on my phone. Let me bring in a comment from Matt who says, my daughter is now 18. She got zero screen time before age two. Matt was keyed in with what the uh, academy was saying there. (laughs) Got it. After that, I think we allowed her 15 minutes per day, and I think that really had an impact. And Victor had a similar comment. My kids had zero screen time of any any kind when they were babies and toddlers. They had no devices until they turned 14. We were pretty strict with screen time and content limits. I understand what you're saying, Kathy, about... Uh, under twos Mm. no screen time Mm. but what i wonder is is the problem that they're looking at a screen or is it just that they're not interacting with an adult in their environment so like if they were in the corner staring at the wall it would be the same problem probably yeah um what you really want to have is good social interaction let me make it real basic for you it turns out human evolution comes to play here yeah And humans have evolved to have a social brain. Mm -hmm. So the way we learn best is through social interactions. And that's how come we can't replace teachers with a robot, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Because it really matters that somebody's paying attention to you. Now, I would argue that even for us at the dinner table, I had one son who was really into screen time when the iPhone came out. Man, he was all over it. So he would go. we would go out to dinner, and he would constantly be glancing at the phone. And I couldn't figure out how to break the habit. So one day I texted him. And I said, hi, guess who's on the other side of the table? (laughs) See if we could have a real conversation. So what we do know is the conversations 
are the key, especially for little guys. And I'm yeah. going to go all the way up to four and beyond. For Let that. me ask a follow up. Wow. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so let's imagine a scenario. Yeah, and this is a scenario that plays out a lot in a lot of households. Yeah, you're alone with the kid. Could be a one one year old, two year old. Mm. You've got to go do something mm-hmm. that the kid cannot be a part of. Absolutely, it's non-negotiable. You got to make <clears throat> dinner. You have to mm-hmm. make a call mm-hmm. to do something, and you have to, they have to be occupied by something. Is giving them a screen no worse than again the whole sort of staring at the wall a thing? Toy, like, like, a human like, is it toy. Any, <laughs> is it any more detrimental? You're asking, am I going to harm them? Absolutely not for the moment. Look, right. there are people who are anti-screen. I frankly think that's ridiculous from both a practical standpoint and a scientific one. Mm-hmm. Um, screens are here to stay. And in fact, I would say there would be problems with kids who'd never seen a screen mm-hmm. because they have to have a healthy diet too. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great to not have your kid have any dessert. Okay, but boy, are they gonna go wild once they get a dessert. So I think we have to do things in balance to introduce them to how to use screens sensibly and to make sure the content that they are viewing is age appropriate and interactive. Hmm. Yeah, and if you're just turning in, tuning in, we're speaking with Kathy Hirsch Pasek, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Temple University. We're talking about children and screen time. Do you have any questions? How much screen time do you allow for your children? Are you a no screens household? What's going on there? You can email us, studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call 888-477-9499. We got this email from Anna who says, I'm a retired developmental pediatrician. During the years of my work, it was it has been abundantly clear to me that this has effects on very young children. It hijacks the brain's pathways from the social and communication development that the brain is programmed for. Anna says, unfortunately, there has been a lot of resistance to acknowledging and researching this one major factor affecting the increase in ADHD, communication, and social disorders in children. Kathy, can you talk about that? If your child has too much screen time at a very young age, could it cause some of these developmental delays or or disorders? Well, the truth is she's right. Mm -hmm. Are there a few pebbles that have been thrown into the pond in this research? There certainly are. Um, And some people have gone so far as to say that it creates a kind of inattentiveness to the rest of the world or an over-distraction. And that's also the fault of the developers. Mm -hmm. Because when we create apps, there are ways to do it so that it has the highest educational value. Mm -hmm. And very few people are actually looking at how to create a real educational app. So in fact, in a study that we did that came out in uh, 2021, well, we didn't do it actually, Jenny Radetzky's team did it, Meredith Meyer, and they looked at the 100 most downloaded apps, and they used a criteria that we had come up with for a good educational app. And you'd be shocked at how many of the apps that people download most frequently actually passed the bar. What was the number? Mm. Should you take a guess? <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> two or three. Two or wow. three. Wow. So out of 100? Yep. So wow. the apps themselves are not providing a type of educational e- experience. Exactly. What's happening yeah. Yeah, is that they're not, they're not buying into the, what we know about in the science about how kids learn. But you can put educational on anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Just say and it's educational. That's a problem. So I actually agree 
with mm-hmm. with what the developmental pediatrician said. She's right. There's a lot that we need to know. What I don't think we want to do right now is say, oh, at three hours of screen time, you'll get ADD. Right. And at six hours, you'll get but, autism. But how I mean, much time is too much time? So if you were to give someone a parent guidelines and they're constantly in this battle with kids because <laughs> I've seen the battles happen. You so see I, them in public, so okay? Yeah. And so how do you sort of like make the case where you're willing to stand there and make and, and do the fight because you know this is for your child's uh, good, good. Well, we know yeah. it's for their good even if we don't have to go all the way to autism and we don't have to go yeah. all the way to ADHD. So let's, let's stop there. Mm-hmm. Uh, our kids still need to know how to treat other people with respect. They still need to know how to be citizens in whatever community they are in. They need to know how to navigate social skills. And the more time any kids spend totally solo or being hyped up by the excitement on the screen, the less they're doing those things that are going to be fundamental for growing up and becoming citizens of the world. So let me give the parents a way to look at this and think about it. Mm -hmm. One is think about screen time as a diet. Mm. And ask yourself, what would you consider a healthy diet? That's going to change by parent. Some parents are more dessert-oriented and other (laughs) parents aren't. That's okay. I don't want to tell you how to parent. But you need to know that there are consequences to the choices you make, which is also fine. Okay? For older kids, I think you have to say, look, here are some of the limits we know about. Here's what you're not doing when you're on the screen. We know all your friends are on that screen. We know they call it social media, but it's not really social. Mm -hmm. Okay? So let's figure out a time and a time of day that would work for you. And Mm -hmm. I would even come up with a contract. And I know Josh Shapiro, uh, Jordan Shapiro, came up with a very similar idea Mm. in his book on screen time. So I think we just have to manage it a little bit better and not give up. But I'm going to come back to the point. We have to manage our own screen time too. I yeah. know. Can't yeah, you can't you say can't say one thing <laughs> and do another. Practice what you preach. Yeah. And also spend time talking with yeah, your yeah. kid. But okay, so when we talk about the research though, what we know and what we think we know and what yep. we don't know, yeah. I would imagine <laughs> from a scientific perspective, it's very hard to isolate whether screen time is the cause of outcome X. Because I'm guessing you're looking at longitudinal survey data. You, you can't control for a lot of other things in a kid's life that might contribute to some of these things that we're talking about. I mean, give us a realistic appraisal of what the research can prove and what it, it can't prove yet. Well, first of all, I'll tell you that research can never prove anything. Mm-hmm. What it can give you is a strong suggestion. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are many other factors involved. So if you have a more restless kid, or a kid with a terrible temperament. Right, you might put them in front of the screen I mean, more. Please, yeah. I need to have a minute to myself to take a shower. So that's correlation, not causation, <laughs> okay. right? So you don't know which way it goes right. often. But also to remember that our kids really are riveted to moving things that are colorful. Mm. So what I ask, and here's the scientific definition I give, we know that the very best apps, the very best screen-engaged moments are going to be active, not passive. So the kid has something to do, minds on, okay? 
They are going to be engaged, not distracted. Many of the things that we have in the app world today and in the digital world today, they have things that pop up all over, which are constantly trying to keep us engaged and attentive, but are bad for kids. So active, engaged, it should be meaningful to kids. It should be socially interactive, if possible, iterative in that it changes a little bit each time, and joyful. And if you want an educational app, it should have a clear learning goal. And we're about a minute from wrapping up, a little bit less than a minute. Yep. Got to ask you if you need yeah. to dial it back, advice for parents for dialing it back. And and I've seen parents sort of take away the screen time and kids have self-corrected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. after it's, it, it was a period of discontent. But then, <laughs> then they self-correct. Look, our kids have a lot of self-content, uh, discontent. Um, you know, they want to go out to the market and they want to stay there till midnight. They can't do it. We negotiate that. It's time for us to find balance and screen time as well. It's going to be healthier for us. But remember, as part of that contract, as my grandkids say, don't be a two-legged screen watcher yourself. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much, Kathy. That was uh, Catherine Hirsch-Pasek, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Temple University. So glad you joined us today on Studio Two. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And John, by the way, says via email that the National Day of Unplugging 2024 is mm-hmm. happening Friday, March 1st. If you want to participate, perhaps yeah, after maybe this conversation, you do. I don't know. And just a quick note, tomorrow is Leap Day, which is February 29th. A day that only happens every four years. We want to hear from you. Is it, is it your birthday or wedding anniversary tomorrow? Send us an email right now. We want to congratulate you live on air. The email is studio2 at whhyy.org. I didn't know we were doing that. That's very cool. Hey, that, All right, Leap Day folks, reach out. We studio want to hear from you. at whyy.org. Our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us today.